1: The week has gone well for everyone. Welcome to a special Thursday night edition of Nightlight Part 2. Ken Quiethawk's introduction is a perfect setup for tonight's show. Our distinguished and returning guest is here, and I'm looking forward to kicking back and eating some Pop Rocks and drinking soda and learning about folklore from Dr. Alan Hunter. I know those old friends are cheering me on to consume it. And there are a couple mermaids, one red dragon rider and one human billboard saying, no, don't consume that stuff, Mark. But uh, why did many of the listeners automatically know what I'm talking about uh, why did those under forty five even know what I'm referencing you need to be closer to uh fifty but uh why do such legends uh persist? Are they based on fact? Many literary masterpieces and songs are based on folklore and stories past down from generation to generation um you can listen to led zeppelin's gallows Pole." It's a just a traditional folk song um shakespeare's in midsummer night's dream uses the juice of a pansy to create an aphrodisiac to get the story started and you know throughout the rest of the play um all types of flower imagery are used uh what cultural and therapeutic significance did the flowers hold to the Elizabethans, and, and where did they derive their information? Uh, Sir Walter Scott collected folklore in the Scottish borders uh, and said he met David Ritchie and the protagonist of his novel, The Black Dwarf. Uh, Washington Irving incorporated folklore in many of his popular tales, like the guests from Gibbet Island. Um, when Mike Bestine and Mason Winfield were our guests, like well, one of the first shows we did, um, and they were covering the New York Iroquois and the stories about them using stone canoes to paddle across Lake Erie to arrive along the um, western shores in New York. You get the other native uh, legends about giants, and uh, Rob Sullivan talks about the demiurge from Jewish folklore. Uh, The Wizard of Oz was to be an, uh, an American... Uh, folk tale, uh, but you know, the Grimm brothers' collection of about 200 fairy tales is the Holy Grail of folklore collections. And there was a, a recent cable uh, show that modernized these tales. So, why do they linger in our memories? What cultural value do they serve? So, we have Dr. Alan G. Hunter returning for the third time to help us understand. What we can learn from folklore, with a special emphasis on the Grim brothers. Uh, he's the author of the fascinating "Princes, Frogs, and Ugly Sisters," which, uh, no, I can't. Re- oh, uh, which was recently published by Inner Traditions and can be found on innertraditions.com and a- Amazon. Alan has had a career working with troubled youth as as well as being a professor of literature at Curry College, and continues to write uh, books that we're glad to review on Nightlight. Hi, Alan. How are you? Oh, very happy to hear your voice, and very happy to be here, Mark. Okay. Well, hopefully that's not going to change over the next two hours. <laughs> but but um, yeah, you know, I you know really. Enjoyed Princess Frogs and the Ugly Sisters. Uh, really okay. neat book. I've, you know, with the rather lengthy introduction, you can tell I you know, like stuff like that. And I have like a mm-hmm. couple more ideas, you know, I uh, you know, want to develop as we go yeah. along. Uh, but, you know, the Grimm Brothers, uh, you know, you know it, 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 or, do present some I- interesting stories. You know, they're different from the uh, Disney versions. Uh, yeah. But you know, before we get into uh, you know, talking talking about you, you know their work, you, you know, you, you, you do mention uh, early on in your book that uh, yeah, you also have. Some doubts about uh, you know, Shakespeare, and mm-hmm. uh, we've covered that that topic uh, a few times with uh, you know, about three people involved in that Shakespeare authorship controversy. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, uh, what's your? Yeah, you know, uh, we don't have to go into a lot of detail. Yeah, you, know, you just mm. uh, also believe that. You know, have we been attributing uh, this great body of uh, plays and poems, sonnets, to the wrong person? It, you know, was it a group of mm-hmm. authors? Uh, you know, is it just the 17th Earl of Oxford? Uh, you mm-hmm. know, what, what's your professional view of th- this? I, I I just wanted to add, add just a little bit yeah. more information yeah. to. Uh, what we've already been covering. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a it's a really really good question. I
2: mean, Shakespeare was uh, to to roll this back. He was a, a a real person. We have enough evidence to know that he was a real person. Um, his contemporaries wrote about him. So, whoever he was, he was a very unusual person. And I think one of the things that we get hung up on is um, you know who wrote fill in the blank um, uh, and, and what we may want to consider is that Shakespeare was uh, whoever Shakespeare was and I believe there was a man called William Shakespeare and he wasn't the 17th Earl of Oxford but I'll get into that in a moment um, you know he was a, he was a man who started off as an actor as well as a writer and so like screenwriters of today he would he would know all of the actors because they were all they were all members of the company. They paid to join the company. He would know these actors, and he would say, "Hmm, uh, who uh, who would make a really good uh, hero of this kind? Who would make a good Julius Caesar?" Hmm. And so he would write the pieces as modern scriptwriters do today. They write a, a movie for a certain actor or a certain actress. They say, oh, we we have to have this person. And then if it didn't work, then they would rewrite it with the actor or with another scriptwriter. And, you know, that happens today because, you know, when you see a movie... Um, uh, there's always, you know, script by, and you know, (laughs) you know, if you know Hollywood at all, which I I dabbled in some Hollywood script writing uh, stuff myself, you know that that script has gone through, you know, five, six, seven hands. Mm -hmm. And um, so to have one person's name attached to it is perhaps erroneous. And then, of course, you have the the, the very real problem of uh, you know how many plays just got lost because we know that many right. of them got lost um, mm-hmm. and uh, how were they put together? But if we return to the idea of you know it has to be a nobleman who who uh, the seventeenth Earl of Oxford or whomsoever um, who wrote these plays, I think we paint ourselves into a corner because you know, um, uh, most of the playwrights of that era, people that Shakespeare would have known, would have been familiar with, and definitely collaborated with, you know, Beaumont and Fletcher, um, Ben Johnson, he mm-hmm. knew these people, he drank with these people. They were always picking each other's brains like musicians today. They were always stealing <laughs> a good uh, a good tune and reworking it. Of course they were, they were professionals. They were trying to make a living. So these, um, you know, such a person would have been very, very hampered in being able to mix with the more ordinary kinds of folks if he had been a nobleman, because we can't really conceive of what a nobleman was like in the 17th century. But a nobleman had had uh, the power of life and death over all the people who lived within his his territory i mean he was he was insanely powerful if he chose to be so um he, he was judge jury and executioner and that sort of mindset is very very hard to match up with someone like shakespeare who seems more to have been like a sponge uh taking mm-hmm. references from everywhere now you mentioned just right. a moment ago you said Midsummer Night's Dream, you know, which is actually mm-hmm. one of the very, very few plays that we know of. There are only two that we know of that had no direct source, Midsummer Night's Dream and Tempest. Okay? All the others, Shakespeare stole the plot from well-known sources. It's been you know, <laughs> attested mm-hmm. again and again. But within Midsummer Night's Dream, we have all these references to flowers and their medicinal qualities and you know their ability to charm. this was this was folklore, and noblemen tended not to get much folklore. People like Shakespeare, if we're right in if I'm right in thinking that he really was the son of a glover in Stratford who went broke and had to hide from the church authorities all terribly well um, documented if he really was that man he would have known the woods and the trees and the medicinal qualities of flowers, he'd have been in the kitchen knowing these things because you know that was how you you got your medicine in those days and so mm-hmm. um, what I'd like to do is well, whoever we believe Shakespeare might be and I don't want to offend anybody but we have to believe not that he was this person or that person, but that he was this extraordinary polymath who was interested in just about everything that you could possibly be interested in in the 17th century. He knew all about agriculture. He knew all about the flowers and the trees and the terms that were used for them in Warwickshire, which is, of course, where he was growing up, as well as elsewhere, and, um, you know, he was, he was trying to make a living uh, using what he'd got. And to do that, he needed folk tales, he needed fairy tales, he needed familiar tales. So that sometimes people, I'm sure, would turn up at the theater and say, oh, you know, um, this is all about the Romans. We know a little something about the Romans. Let's find out more. And so you had the Roman cycle. Or well, you had the history cycle of King Henry, the Fourth Part One and Part Two, Richard the Second, etc., etc. He was using folk tales in order to create a manageable sense of history. And history tells us where we are and how things are. You know, his his history was all stolen from various chronicles, Holinshed's chronicles. Um, right was one of the major sources and um he was he wasn't interested in being totally accurate he was interested in giving us some wisdom about how the world works so that's a very long answer to your question mark yeah. but um no, you know no. there are some,
1: yeah. it's great i just wanted your perspective since mm. that topic does Come up every six months or so.
2: Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fascinating topic.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It really is. And, uh, you know, and, you know, I told you I wanted to uh, do this like little segment on Geoffrey of Monmouth's uh, 12th century history of Mm. the kings of Britain and, Mm. you know, our, uh, you know, good. Friend uh, Maria Wheatley, who's at mm. Stonehenge about daily, said, "Oh, you have to ask that a question." So, I, okay, so I'm going to send the archive to Maria tomorrow. Uh, yeah. You know, tomorrow when it's done. But it, you know, it, it, if you read Jeffrey's, uh, you know, mm-hmm. chronicle of um, you know the building of Stonehenge. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, many years ago, the giants transported them, meaning the rocks, from mm-hmm. the remotest confines of Africa and set them up in Ireland. Uh, you know, we know that, yeah, you know, that's not accurate. The mm-hmm. stones were quarried in Wales and transported mm-hmm. uh, to where they are uh, now. Uh, yeah, but you know, he just. Jeffrey just mentioned uh, mentions in that passage uh, that giants moved them. Well, Mm. yeah, yeah. Aubrey Burl's uh, book, Stone Circles of British Mm -hmm. Isles, does talk about foreign uh, occupiers of the Stone Stonehenge area uh, Mm -hmm. were much larger than the native. English mm, yeah. like Neolithic people so uh, you know uh, okay there's a little bit of truth uh, okay you know, maybe they weren't mm-hmm. giants but they are uh a, a much larger uh race of people from uh the yeah. continent um uh, mm-hmm. you know the Africa to Ireland thing you know it, it it's actually kind of backwards uh, you know you get uh, <laughs> uh um New Grange is what something like 500 years older than the Giza pyramids but yeah. the that megalithic engineering was perfected in Africa. So mm-hmm. yeah, okay, yeah, there's yeah, that connection. Yeah, there's <laughs> it, it's not yeah. it, it's not perfectly yeah. accurate, but yeah, there's no. something to it. Um
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: but but one of the uh, you know, more interesting a- aspects of you know the building of St- Stonehenge is where mm. Merlin is interacting with uh, you know one of the, you know the king and um, he said the, you know these stones are connected with certain sacred religious rites and they have various mm. properties which are medicinally important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when Maria's been a guest with us, uh, you know, she's you know, made the claim that um, Stonehenge was basically like a, a used as a healing center. It was, you know, a, a hospital. So, uh, you know. Jeffrey is writing about seven hundred years after Camelot mm-hmm. and, you know it's still a couple two three thousand years after you know, the stonehenge was start uh, yeah. Yeah. the whole complex was started but you know if we just look at uh you writing seven hundred years after uh he's setting his story what is it about the accuracy that was passed on about yeah you know, this is a healing center mm,
0: yeah you know,
1: mm, you know, mm. yeah there uh, that's i think that's pretty interesting
2: yeah yeah but but that well, it, it
1: spoke, mm. there's a kernel of truth to uh, mm-hmm. that whole that whole uh section in Jeffrey's book
2: yeah yeah oh definitely
1: um it, uh, but it's. Is... You know, yeah, I was just gonna say it, it sets the stage for what, you, you know, the truths that you're gonna be talking about. You know, who are these wizard characters? You know, like, they seem to know know something. And mm-hmm. you, you know, yeah. the the Grimm brothers have a bunch of wizards. And mm-hmm. they certainly and, do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so it, but it, it, I just thought the Stonehenge thing was just a
2: mm. nice
1: jumping off point it, it <laughs> might, might be a yeah. better uh, analogy than the pop rocks but uh... <laughs> yeah well it's a, it's a very good jumping
2: off point because uh, as you say um, legend grows up and there is often a kernel of something really important in the legend that gets perhaps lost a little bit or, or distorted a little bit and the time period gets a little um, changed around as well. I mean, modern archaeology supports some of the things that are being uh, postulated because Stonehenge is on this huge, huge ceremonial plain, which includes Asbury, um Durrington Walls, uh, Woodhenge, and many other smaller monuments that... W- we're only just discovering. I mean, on, on last last month, on June 22nd, I think it was, the Smithsonian uh, put out a report saying that um, all the way around Durrington Walls, which is just across the other side of the river from Stonehenge and pass, uh, linked, walls linked to it before they knocked the stones down, of course, um, uh, that uh, the archaeologists had found this series of pits completely circling. Durrington Walls and about a thousand paces from Durrington Walls and these pits were not small pits, they were um, 15 feet deep circular, uh, 30 feet across and, um, and you know, perfectly cylindrical now one says gosh you know you don't, <laughs> you don't build or excavate pits like that in the, in the Neolithic period unless this is a very special place and um, it's clear that Geoffrey of Monmouth, who was writing, as you say, nearly well, nearly 3,000 years after the, the first uh, part of Stonehenge was put up, he knew that this was a really important ceremonial complex. He maybe wasn't quite sure which bits were which. Um, there's at least one theory, folklore theory, that... Uh, goes that um, uh, Avebury Rings, which are just a few miles away, um, was a marriage ceremony place for our early ancestors, who actually were shorter than the, the people who came from the continent, uh, since you mentioned that. Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. bear in mind that until, wow. until, the year, until the year 1920, well, actually 1900, if you were over six feet tall in England, you were officially a giant. Oh. Think of that. I mean, the okay. average Englishman was about five foot four. So <laughs> so the, the, the idea of the giants doesn't necessarily mean somebody who's 90 feet tall. It means someone about six feet tall, which we regard as being pretty normal today. Uh, so, uh, so this is uh, this is where legend and nomenclature and how we describe things gets a little confused, I think, and and, and delightfully so. So I'll give you I'll give you one more example here because um, okay, um, the, the, you know, we all know the the story of the sword in the stone, right? Right. Um, the sword has to be pulled out of the stone, and this is the person who will be the king of England. Wonderful. And we all know the story of Excalibur. The lady of the lake raises the uh, sword out of her, her arm, appears in the middle of the lake and King Arthur takes it. And then when he is on his last almost death bed, he throws it back into the lake and it is reclaimed. And you think to yourself, well, what a strange story that is. And it's wonderfully romantic and it's very moving. And, there is a little kernel of something magical. At least it would have been magical to our ancestors, because swords in the very early days of metallurgy, so the at the right right at the start of the Iron Age, swords were um, a bit of a problem, because the iron ore was not very pure, and so you could make a sword that looked good, but it was in great danger of shattering (laughs) or you could make a sword that looked good but was in great danger of bending Uh, so for a long time the metallurgists and believe me every village had somebody who was making something out of copper out of silver out of gold or out of out of iron the metallurgists it is, uh, this is a, an archaeological theory that has been floated a few years ago. The metallurgists discovered that if you um, took iron ore and heated it and then poured it into a mold, which was difficult to create because molds would break unless you carved them in rock. And we have some of these. So the molten metal was poured into rock-like um, outlines of a sword blade with a with a, a pl- place to grasp it at the end. And then, of course, you had uh, a basic sword, but it was going to be fairly pure, uh, um, impure iron, and it had to be worked. And that meant you had to heat it and hammer it and wait for it you had to plunge it into cold water to temper it, the lady in the lake, putting the, mm-hmm. the, the sword in the lake in order to cause the iron to cool quickly so that you got a strong sword that could also be sharpened. And you know, when ah. you look at it in those terms, you realize that rumbling through the background was what would have been regarded by the average iron age citizen they would have said it's a miracle you know we melt these stones and they and they turn to liquid and then it becomes this hard iron sharp thing you know ah magic magic merlin's magic well maybe the first the first metallurgists felt like merlin to them but when you look at the folklore in this way you see Oh my goodness, there are human tales, and rumbling below them, there are other other tales which are ancient and have to do with wonder at how things in the world worked. So there's a long disquisition there, um, going off at a bit of a tangent, but I'm trying here to suggest uh, that when we listen to folk tales, sometimes there is something unexpected in there that we go, oh, Wow, that is really what they, those people in that time and period, would have been fascinated by. That today just completely bypasses us.
1: Okay, I let, really enjoyed that explanation. That was a couple really neat segues away from your book, and, <laughs> I, and I think the uh, audience uh, got had to. Get get something out of your discussion, and so let's kind of move it it into your, you know, the insights that you you uh, provide in your book, and Mm, mm. you know, with uh, you know the loyal audience that Barbara's built up over the last eleven years, or yeah, might be considered uh pilgrims mm-hmm. uh, you know all, you know look, looking for the truth um yeah. and you know, if we yeah you, know, you do a- analyze the uh Cinderella story and
0: mm.
1: you, you know, we can look at her going to the ball over the like three three evenings and hmm. and you, know, you say she, you know that's a pilgrimage for her it, it, it you know it's not like you know big you know a pilgrimage doesn't have to be a huge undertaking like uh you know the going the sixty miles from the hmm. uh, hmm. uh the tabard Inn to uh the canterbury cathedral it, nice. it just yeah. Being, you know, yeah just you know this uh you know walking down the block for cinderella from the house and mm-hmm. her yeah you know, the little, uh a tree outside you know their house to uh mm-hmm. where the uh, uh weekend festivities were held and yeah so yeah. can you tell us a little bit about you know the importance of the pilgrimage uh or mm. pilgrim ar- archetype uh, character. Yes.
2: Well, um,
1: that's a really uh,
2: wonderful question because I think you're right. I mean, the pilgrim archetype is the one who questions, who is looking for answers beyond the usual answers. And you know, that that's your listeners. Those are the people that you and Barbara yeah. have have been uh, working with. I mean, I think working with sounds. Uh, is the best description I can think of because, you know, you, you are there asking people to ask questions of themselves. This is the pilgrim archetype. Um, now, as you say, you don't have to go from London to Canterbury or from London to, uh, to Jerusalem or from, um, you know, London to Mecca. Uh, but you do have to get out of your comfort zone. In order to be a pilgrim, you do have, and that's what Cinderella does. I mean, she's basically sitting by the fire, kind of imprisoned. They won't let her go to the, the ball. Um, they, she keeps saying, How about if I sort out, you know, if I do something? And mother says, Sort out these peas and lentils. And she does it yeah. with the help of birds. And then she says, No, you still can't go. And she does it three times. Uh, well she gets three refusals and the mother says well you don't have a dress to wear so you can't go a lesser person would not uh, would just say oh well I guess I can't go but for Cinderella she says "Yeah, I'm not going to let these people stop me and she she goes to the ball she she does it not just once she does it three times so it's not just let's see if I can break the rules once it's I am going to break the rules because I know I have to meet my destiny. And that's what a pilgrim is. Someone who says, I'm not going to stay in this safe, cozy place. I have something to find out. I don't know what it is yet, but I'm going to find out. And of course, those are the people who um, who tend to make their parents very uh, anxious. <laughs> and they're the ones that tend to... Uh, Uh, to have aunts and uncles go, oh no, he, she is 29 and not married, not settled down, oh no. And the pilgrim says, well, I've got a few things to do first. Uh, Please stand aside. But the pilgrim is above all a spiritual and intellectual seeker after what he or she feels is true. And actually, um, in history, if we think of you know the pilgrims who went to Jerusalem, and the pilgrims who who still today uh, go on the Camino to um, uh, the uh, Church of uh, Santiago de Compostela, which is in Spain, um, actually every year uh, hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, walk across Europe or sometimes they walk only part of the way to get to this church in Spain. And mm-hmm. it's not about you know, seeing the architecture, although the architecture is beautiful. It's about the process of what ha- what happens to you if you carry your possessions on your back in a little bag and you spend three weeks walking, walking Across Europe, uh, mostly across fields. There are no, you know, there are no easy ways of doing it. Um, th- through the, the Pyrenees, sometimes. I mean, occasionally people freeze to death in the Pyrenees. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what does it do to you? Uh, what does it take in order to go on that pilgrimage? And actually, it's a spiritual pilgrimage. People reach the church and they may not be able to put into words what it is they've learned or what it is they've discovered, but actually if you meet them and you talk to them, you feel there's a depth of something really important, humanly important, that they have met themselves somehow. And that was the idea, that was why, you know, that was why pilgrim roots were so popular in the medieval period. Because people knew that you could, you could uncover something that you couldn't uncover if you stayed at home. Uh, when I lived mm. in England, because so, I was, of course, born in England, uh, there was a lovely little church just up the road from me, and the the pillars uh, of the church um, had uh, graffiti cut into them, and the most common graffito there was a cross a little cross and apparently this was what the medieval um, mostly young men would do to, when they just before they went off on their pilgrimage or later the crusades they would um, take their knife or their sword and and because they had to do an all night vigil not go to sleep but be sitting on the altar or kneeling on the altar steps praying praying for God to enlighten them, they would stay awake by carving with the edge of their swords, which they took in with them to be blessed, into this this series of pillars, these little crosses and you look at them, they're they're there today a little Compton uh, not little Compton, Compton Mm. is the name of the village and the marks are there and they've been there for, well 700 years but they knew that they had to, as it were, purify themselves first before taking on this great adventure and all all good folk tales and all good fairy tales are an invitation to the main protagonist to go on a pilgrimage to leave home in some sense and take the risks involved in telling one's truth every single one of the folk tales that is that is a, a real story as opposed to just an anecdote is about somebody leaving home. Again and again, the Grimm brothers uh, described this to us. And because it's when you're on the road that you learn stuff, staying at home, it all becomes rather theoretical. So the pilgrim is a major
1: archetype. You know, archetype. Okay, and... He- you know, when you're on the road, frequently you get um, lost in the woods. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah that's uh, another in- interesting metaphor that is presented in the tale. And, you know, you uh, bring that up as well. Uh, can you talk a little bit about you know, that? And it's actually actually a good experience to... Mm get lost in the woods at, at some point. <laughs> yes, it is. It can be a
2: little scary, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's okay, because we have to learn to be with fear. And um, That's one of the great human lessons. We have to learn to cope with fear and to realize it's just fear. But yes, you're, you're again... You're absolutely right there. In many of the tales that I can think of, um, uh, and I'm thinking of the the little little tailor, um, Hans the Hedgehog, Hans my Hedgehog, um, really, and the three brothers, etc., etc. For many of these, what happens is, in the Grimm brothers' tales, uh, is that this figure takes off, he leaves home, and one of the first things that happens is he goes into a dark forest and he gets pretty much lost but the idea is that in a dark forest you lose yourself but you also find your spiritual self now it's hard for us to think of of getting lost in a forest um, perhaps today because we have a GPS and we have maps and all the rest of, of it but <clears throat> in the year 1800. You know, um, Europe, most of Europe was covered in forests still, in places where today there are none. And they were dense forests and people did get lost <laughs> and uh, robbers did live there and bears and all the rest of it. And sometimes people took a long time to find their way out. Um, the famous example that I, I love, actually, is uh, that when Napoleon was fighting... Uh, the battle of salamanca which i think was something like 1806 okay um he won because half of the of the troops the i think the german troops got lost in the forest and they couldn't find the battle you know when you think of a of a of a napoleonic battle the noise etc must have been tremendous but half the troops couldn't find where to get to because they were still lost in the forest and so Napoleon won that one. If you go to Salamanca today you will you will not see a forest that just isn 't there. But to return to the tales it 's a very good metaphor for needing to lose your direction in order to find it again and it 's a very old image in the Grail legends, of course. Um, uh, uh, Joseph Campbell speaks uh, eloquently about this, but one of the things that happens in the, uh, the Grail legend uh, is that the knights are gathered, knights of the Round Table are gathered, and they say, "You know, we need to go on a quest." And so that's the moment when the Holy Grail appears, and they all decide to go on a quest. And the line um, in uh, uh, that fascinates me is the next morning it says they got up and they all rode out to the large forest and each one entered the forest at the place that seemed to him best so nobody is going down a beaten path they're making their own way through the forest and they'll they know they'll get lost and they know they'll meet people and some of them will be friendly and some of them won't That's the essence of the pilgrim archetype. So when you have, you know, your relative who says, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life, but I feel I have to do this now. Our tendency is to say, oh, don't do that. You know, there's no money in it. You know, there's no security in it. But if we know about the archetypes, the six archetypes of human development that I outline in my book, We can say, oh, here's somebody who's entering the pilgrim phase. (gasps) Stand back, because this person has to do it his or her way. Don't try and say, go to law school, it'll pay better. Don't try to say, um, do something safe. You have to let people take their own way. Now, this is a fundamental psychological truth about mental health. The people who I find in my counseling practice, again and again, who are most confused are those who have not been allowed to take their own way. Their parents or their family have said, oh no, you you really don't want to do that, you must do this, you must join the family firm, you must and they come right. out at the end of a couple of years and they say, I don't like it. I don't want to do it. I don't know what I want to do, but it's not this. And my work with, um, with my counseling clients is often to just say, you know what? What you're doing is really healthy. You need to find your path, not someone else's path. So this is just a, a terribly important stage in human, the psyche's development. And it's been with us since, well, forever, because in every tale you can think of, I have certainly every tale I can think of, any, every cycle of tales, the young hero or female heroine has to go off into the wilderness, has to go off someplace that is not safe and brave it. It's even, you know, it's even in the Jesus story in the Bible, if you want. I mean, mm-hmm. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. That's an awful long right. time not to have food. And in that time, he's tempted by the devil, we're told. And uh, whether you are you know, a believer in Christianity or not, it doesn't stop us looking at this as a human tale that says, when you go off on your own to find yourself... There will be temptations. There will be temptations, just as as Jesus faced them. You know, temptations of food, of glory, of of um, believing yourself special. Power. Yes, absolutely. You know, the devil says, "You know, I'll give you all this this world if you'll just bow down and worship me." And Jesus says, "You know, I'm not. I'm on my path. No, get thee behind me, Satan," he says. Now, that's probably an example that most people um, in our culture know. And um, if we just know the story and say, oh, it's that Christian story thing, we miss the point that this is a story that was very, very effective in reminding people of their own psychic and spiritual needs. Namely, we have to find our own path, and we have to fight for our own path so that's the pilgrim archetype
1: and you know, you give us uh what is it? um page 153 where you, know, you do use that uh falling asleep uh metaphor mm-hmm. for yeah you know, Like, just, it's not that you're lazy. Mm -hmm. Some of the characters are just processing their own internal uh, world and where they want to go. Similar to what you were saying, you know, uh, with the Pilgrim, uh, you know, making your own path. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, yes, sleep as a
2: metaphor, of course, is is wonderful, because um, sleep is the letting go of what is in order to just be asleep, (laughs) and uh, characters in the Grimm Brothers' tales, and this is why I wrote about these tales in such specificity and so much detail, because they are psychologically absolutely accurate. I mean, characters are tempted with sleep and sometimes go to sleep, and sometimes allow themselves to go to sleep as part of a psychic process of letting go of the past. So, uh, in one tale I can I can think of, um, the young uh, the young prince um, uh, has to sit. Uh, guard over a series of princesses, and um, uh, the uh, the challenge is that at time, various times in, in the night, someone will come along and say, "You know, are you asleep? Are you asleep?" But luckily, the princesses have all clubbed together and arranged for a, a reply to be given, so that he can get his sleep, so that he can be renewed. So they're working on his side against authoritarian demands that he should stay awake. A little later in the same, in the same story, um, the youngest princess uh, takes him under her wing, and uh, when he set difficult tasks like you know, clear this entire forest by morning, here is a glass axe, uh, he can't do it. And he says to her, you know, that's it, I I give up. I absolutely give up. They're just going to have to kill me. And the youngest princess says, don't worry, just lie down. you know. And she soothes him and says, go to sleep. And the moment he's asleep, she calls up this army of elves who do the task for him. And then a bit later he, he wakes up, says it's all been done. He never asks her. He says, well, how did you do that? what happened what's going on he never asks her he just accepts that when he's with this woman magical things happen and to question them really isn't part of of understanding and if we translate that into into real terms think of it this way when you're with Someone who really is your significant other, your other half, your your soulmate. When you're with that person, magical things happen. Things that have seemed impossible sometimes just happen. And to then turn around and say, "Well, how did that happen? I don't understand. What's what's going on? That doesn't, that's not the laws of physics." <laughs> that, that sort of that sort of gets in the way what needs what happens in the story and it happens 3 times that the princess saves him from death basically by having the the little earth men they're called change the uh, change the landscape what happens is that he recognizes on his own he can't do something but with her with them working together as a team they certainly can move mountains and make things happen. I think that's beautiful. I think that really is beautiful. You know, when you, you see young people who are choosing their life partners, choosing their mates, um, sometimes you you see that they can't quite get anything to, to work. And sometimes you see that they sort of effortlessly go at life with courage and and things sort of unfold for them, almost as though doors are flung open in the most unexpected way. And you think, wow, I don't know what it is they've got, but they've got something. And that's what this this particular Grimm Brothers tale is is suggesting. And I could go into a great deal. It's a very long tale, actually, um, because they then have to escape and they work out a more, shall I say, um, uh equal relationship so as they're running away um, uh, she says oh no my father's coming quick quick how can I hide and uh, he, says, uh, he says I don't know she says I'll turn myself into a fish and you will turn yourself into a lake you think of that she's the fish the, the moving living creature but he is what allows it to live and the king comes along, he can't hmm. see anything, he goes home. Uh, and uh, the next time, I mean, there are variants of this story that's fascinating, this, this element recurs. And the next time, the king comes back, and um, uh, she turns herself into a rose, and he turns himself into the thorny bush that protects it. Again, you know, the beautiful thing protected. And the king comes along <laughs> and says, uh, I, I can't see anything. Uh, uh, and then on another occasion, this time the queen uh, says, oh, the king, he doesn't get it. So um, uh, um, uh, she goes off after the escaping couple, and she, the young princess, says quick, quick to the young man, she says, turn yourself into a church, and I'll turn myself into the the priest. Uh, so... You know, the two can't exist in a priest without a church isn't really a priest. A fish without a lake isn't really going to last very long. A rose without its support can't. And you get the sense from this tale, this folk tale, that, of course, it's not realistic, but psychologically it might be incredibly accurate. When two people are working well together, they support each other in this way they need each other in this way and that's when the magic if we want to call it happens that's when what seemed impossible just unfolds naturally in front of everybody and people go oh okay well I guess they um, and we don't quite know what to make of it but we all know bad relationships we all we've all seen those you know film stars um Uh, seem to Mm -hmm. do it a lot I think because (laughs) they uh, I think because they're not looking at the inner person so much uh, often as you know the publicity uh, or or the glamorous outer person so these these folk tales that uh, I like to focus on always have a deeper meaning beyond the literal meaning they have a yeah
1: oh i i, I just I, I, I go ahead and finish with diet.
2: well i I, I basically w- was going to say that if we regard if we if we look at the literal meaning, then we do what we 've done for the last hundred years, which is where we say oh it can 't be true it's it's fantasy it 's silly it 's for kids and suddenly um we throw away a huge amount of very deep psychological awareness about how people operate and need to operate. You know, they're just for children. It's Disney tales. It's, It's nonsense. It's something we play to the little children on Saturdays when they're bored. Well, that's a terrible thing to do with a story that actually, if one takes the trouble to understand it, has some deep psychological resonances that, Lord knows, we all could, benefit from in our troubled times
1: well and you Hansel and Gretel and Mm. some some of these other stories Mm -hmm. uh, might have references to uh, certain behaviors that there's a term for it Today, but mm-hmm. the Grimm brothers—you know—we're talking about um, th- discussing the symptoms, you know, sometimes of post-traumatic stress disorder, or yeah, uh, you know, uh, you know, the uh, overly strict uh, parents. Uh, you know what you just mentioned a few minutes ago about authoritarian uh figures um you know they also covered or or you, know, you uh talked uh, or wrote about um uh, real situate physical uh, symptoms such as uh depression yes yes uh, and so yeah, you know they're, the, the Grimm brothers are talking about real illnesses that were um uh present in 1812 uh, when the yeah. book came out Yeah, you know, and i'm sure you deal with that with uh you know some of your clients uh mm-hmm. you know so so what are these you know since since we're talking about yeah, you know, the real truths of human behavior. You know, what do some of these parents represent? Uh you know, mm-hmm. some of them are portrayed uh, very uh terribly. Yes, yes.
2: Um well parents uh, appear in, in these stories a great deal, uh obviously, um and sometimes step parents and right. um, you know, the wicked stepmother and the the callous stepfather and folks like that. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, it, it's, it's not uh, um, too huge a step to realize that, of course, in the year 1800, a lot of people, uh, parents, died. Many of them died in childbirth. Women died in childbirth. If you mm-hmm. made it to forty, you were doing okay. So quite a few, there were quite a few orphans out there in the world, and they experienced um, uh, some sort of care, but probably not the best care because they were unlikely to inherit anything. So there were lots of orphans, like Cinderella. I mean, her her mother dies, um, uh, like uh, Sleeping Beauty, actually. Um, uh, uh, you know we could we could keep adding to the list here quite easily and find that there are quite a lot of motherless and sometimes fatherless children Hansel and Gretel are you know they 're basically sent out into the woods there's the there's the forest again they're sent out into the forest to die, and that's when they meet the witch so in terms of tale telling and indeed in terms of psychological damage today, it's often very hard for people to say my biological parent was not a good parent or to say things like I, I hate what my father, mother did to me in my life. It's very hard for people to say that, but it's much easier if you can say in a story that here is a step parent who did this because it takes the anger that the child feels and the disappointment and the and the utter despair that the child feels and displaces it onto somebody else. So that, psychologically, that is very, very useful to be able to tell a story and tell it so that it is acceptable to one's own ears, my step-parent, etc., rather than saying, Actually, my mother never cared for me, which is <laughs> thats a hard one for anybody to utter, let alone face. So there are lots and lots of step-parents, which corresponded uh, quite nicely to the situation then. Strangely enough, it corresponds to the situation now, because there are, are a lot of divorces, and uh, there are a lot of blended families, and parents who are biologically you know, fathers or mothers, but who drift out of the, the familial circle. And there's great pain attached to that. Um, sometimes it's hard for people to get to that pain because it's the pain of something missing, a father who wasn't there. It's hard to assess what you missed. You can see what other people might have had, but it's very hard to, to to pin that down. So these stories are very, very good at articulating what was um, a family dynamic then, and actually is a family dynamic now. So when Hansel and Gretel are abandoned in the woods, they would have every right to say, "Good grief! You know, my parents uh, really didn't care for me very much." That's hard. For a young child to, to acknowledge, instead of which, in the story, they meet the witch, and the witch has the food that they crave, and that's why they were abandoned in the woods because there was nothing to feed them on. The witch has the food, but she enslaves them both, and is going to eat Hansel, going to consume him, going to cook him. Uh, she winds up, of course, in the oven herself. But this dramatizes the whole problem that must have existed for many, many children then and exists for quite a lot of children now, which is, is there any story out there that mirrors my experience of not being wanted? And can I triumph over the people like the witch? who aren't really witches, of course, they just seem that way to the child, the witch who gives me food but wants to control me, wants to devour me, wants wants me to be something I can't be. And so these stories articulate the neuroses of that time and of many other times and actually of our time too. So, we do well to pay attention to these stories and say, yes, um, there is some depth to this. There is something very important that's happening. I'll give you another example um, okay. of that, if you like. Um, but, well, there are so many examples, there, but this is a pretty good one. It's called The Girl Without Hands. And in the course of the story, she has her hands chopped off. That's why it's called that. And she is the uh, the daughter of a miller. And the miller uh, is walking home one day, and the devil says to him, you know, I'll give you everything you want. You just have to give me the first thing you see when you come home. And the miller is a greedy fellow, says, uh, Okay. And he walks home, and of course the first thing he sees is his daughter. And he says to her, Well, um... Uh, I I, I have to give you to the devil and she says okay you're my father I must do what you say Um, but first of all uh, I need to I need to uh, wash myself thoroughly and so she washes herself thoroughly and the devil comes the next day and says I can't take her she's too clean and uh, (laughs) Uh, so the Miller says, "Well, you 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 can't wash yourself." Then, um, and she says, "Okay, I I can't wash myself." Uh, instead of which she cries, and her tears wash her clean. And the Devil comes along again. She's still too clean, you know. We've got to stop her. Uh, and then uh, the Miller says, "Well, there's only one way I can do that, and that's to cut her hands off." And the the Devil says, "Well, you you better you better do that." Uh, ghastly, ghastly stuff and all the time the miller doesn't say I made a mistake devil, you better take me leave my daughter out of it he just regards his daughter as somebody who can be sacrificed for his physical well-being and you think to yourself well, okay except of course that in many households at around that time and in many parts of the world, to this day, daughters are sacrificed in marriages that bring wealth to the father to this day that happens mm-hmm. daughters are married off so that fathers can can uh, um, gain money position etc etc in some countries and to a lesser extent, actually in our own country where people are only too keen to set up marriages for their their daughters that benefit themselves. Um, uh, I won't won't give any examples because I think you can imagine (laughs) that they are out there. So the actual situation was an important one. What does a young woman do when her father's intent on giving her away in order to get money? And the answer in that particular tale is uh, really interesting because what she does is she resists um, uh, doing anything frantic. She doesn't try to kill her father or run off or whatever. She just says, okay, I can't do anything except maintain my innocence. And that's exactly what she does. She goes off into the world without hands, And um, because she is so helpless, the story tells us, she's actually attended on by angels. And you think, wow, this is a sort of saintly tale. But think of it. What happens if you go out into the world helpless and just ask the world to, to provide? Actually, what tends to happen is you meet angels in human form. You meet people who say, "Oh my God, you need some help. Let me help you." Why right. that's exactly what happens in the story. Now she does have a few more, a few more trials along the way, including um, a, a, step, a mother-in-law who doesn't like her. Um, but, you know, she, she goes forward into the world in utter faith that the world will provide for her. And that actually is, is heroic. She doesn't fret. She doesn't fuss. She doesn't flutter. She just goes into the world, and by the end of the story, she does get her hands back and she does find her husband again, and everything is put back in order. Um, but it's a story of courage. What do you do when you have no no clout in the world? Well, you behave with dignity, with restraint, with courage. And the world provides. It's a marvelous tale, actually, not realistic, and yet inspirational.
1: Yeah, and yeah, you know, there are a, a number of other stories. You know, since, since we're talking about um, children, Hansel and Gretel, or um, it, they they seem like they're twins and then you get uh um uh, the uh um the one eye two eye yeah, yeah uh, three eye story with uh, uh looking at you know, the birth order, the children and and you get like Cinderella would fall into that too. And, you know, she's also like this, you know, the stepdaughter, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of uh, swept off to the side there and Mm -hmm. uh, ignored most of the time. But, you know, as as you look at, um, you know, the effects of birth order, Mm -hmm. On the characters and uh, uh, some of the tales, and can you tell us that, that importance? And then and we can you know, kind, of, kind of work in, uh, you know, a little se- segue into uh, ha- how Frank's research uh, su- supports uh, what the Grimm brothers wrote about uh, 200 years earlier.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, very good question. You know, that's Frank Folliway, Frank of course, is the, is the researcher who looked at birth order, uh, Harvard-trained. Um, and he noted some characteristics of birth order that, in fact, the Grimm brothers were very, very astute to recognize. You mentioned the, the story of one-eyed, two-eyed, three-eyed. Uh, the eldest is one eye because she has one eye. Uh, the middle child is uh, two eyes. Normal, in terms of uh, number of eyes, and the last child is is three eyes who has three eyes, two in the usual place, and one in the middle of her head and um, Like all middle children, <laughs> middle children are sort of caught in the sandwich and uh, sometimes not treated terribly well, sometimes not always and This is a quintessential story of a middle child who is not treated very well, she's not given enough food again, and she goes out into the into the world um, <laughs> and uh, is met by a wise woman who allows uh, enables her to get enough to eat. She recites a rhyme and a table appears uh, full of food, which she then can spirit away. And of course, this makes the other sisters terribly jealous. And so they plot against her, um, and they kill her goat, her her magic goat, thinking, "Well, now she, now she won't, she won't be able to get those meals that we've been envying so much." And you think, "What a dumb thing to do!" You know, why didn't they just say, "Hey, can we eat with you?" Because you're obviously getting some good food from this this magical um, rhyme that you tell over your goat. But because they're so so caught up in anger, the eldest child and the youngest child who sort of get in league together bully the middle child. Um, parents, I know, will identify with this from time to time. And what they do is, by bullying the middle child, they actually do something that is destructive not just to the middle child, but to everybody. Well, the story continues, as I'm sure you know. Um, The goat is killed, and the the, the middle child, Two Eyes, asks for its entrails and buries them by the door, because that's what she's been told to do by this magical woman who appears. And this wonderful tree grows up, a uh, gold and silver tree with gold fruit on it, and you think, well, that's 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 interesting, but nobody can get at the fruit except her. The branches won't won't bend towards one eye or three eyes; they only go to two eyes. And you think to yourself, here's a metaphor. What is it we plant that f- grows into fruit? Our goodwill is what we plant that grows into fruit. And no matter how well we do, those people who envied us, even if they're family members, those people who envied us won't like what we do and they won't like how we live. And that's exactly what happens to the older sister and the youngest sister. They are consumed with, um, with just envy and rage. However, Two Eyes uh, manages to meet a, a knight who uh, asks her to get the fruit and she's the only one who can get the fruit and then he says well I think you should come away with me and he does and the tree magically follows her to her new abode where she marries the knight and you think well uh, this is a very strange tale because people have too many eyes but then think of it symbolically if you've got one eye you see things only from one point of view if you've got three eyes, maybe you see too much. And, but if you've got God's sort of, or the, the normal, I hate to use the word normal, but the usual number of eyes, two, you see things in a balanced way. And so what the story is telling us in a, in a roundabout way is that this, this middle child might just be the one who can see things in a more balanced way. Now Frank Soloway, the researcher suggested very strongly that um, the firstborn is usually the one who who follows in the family footsteps the eldest child the thirdborn mm-hmm. tries to tries to fit in wherever he or she can it's uh, the second born that is the peacemaker and that's exactly what we see in this story the peacemaker who has a difficult time and in the end has to get out because sometimes you can't make peace with people and that's just one example of birth order a recurrent example with the Grimm Brothers tales is usually with the youngest child who is often a boy um, who is, who is lauded over by the two elder uh, children and often the, the youngest child sometimes there are three elder children uh, the, the youngest child is often called simpleton or dumbling or stupid or any or any variety of that because in a family the youngest child is often the, the, well by being the youngest all the others are able to do things that the youngest child can't do so sometimes in in not very friendly families the youngest child is thought of as being stupid or um, or somehow not very able. But in all of these stories, and I'm thinking of the Three Feathers, in all of these stories, the Three Feathers particularly, a task is set, and the eldest son doesn't really care if he does it properly or not, and he's usually in league with the second son, who similarly doesn't really care. And the last child, the simpleton, sits down and says, I don't know how to do this. This is a really difficult task. And that is usually when um, he gets some sort of message or discovers a trap door in front of his feet that leads down into the earth. In The Three Feathers, the young man doesn't know what to do, so he he goes down into the the depths of the earth. And there he meets... um, Actually, a large toad, and you think, well, that's not very nice, is it? <laughs> uh, but he doesn't—he just doesn't run away. He says, "I don't know what to do. I've been set a task by my father, and I'm sure my brothers are going to do better." And the first task is find the most beautiful ring in the world. And the toad, there in the in this deep pit, says, "Don't worry, I'll sort it." Uh, take this and hands him a beautiful ring and the simpleton goes to the surface and presents it to his father and yes it is indeed the simplest uh, the, 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 the most beautiful ring and the other brothers haven't really tried they bring back plain iron rings from uh, from a wagon and so it goes with all the three tests because three times this test is is levied, and each time the older brothers say, "No, no, no, that wasn't fair. That wasn't fair." Trying to cheat the youngest out of his reward, and you say to yourself, "So, what is what is the symbolic, the spiritual, the psychological value of this?" And the psychological value, it seems to me, is pretty strong in 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 most of these tales that that uh, have this trope within them, this uh, literary way of looking at things. And that is, if you're the youngest and you think you don't have to do things according to expectations or whatever, if you're in that place, you can be, in fact, a very, very powerful pilgrim. You have the ability to descend not just physically down the steps to where the toad lives but to descend into yourself and say what is it that I need to do here and whatever it is you find will be the finest that is available now think of that for a second think of that how we rush our children through college and we rush them into jobs and we don't give them Mm -hmm. a moment to say What's really true for me? What, what is the treasure I have within me? Ah, what is the treasure I have within me? That's the ring in the first test. Um, a, a scarf or a shawl is the second test. And the third test is the most beautiful maiden in the world. You know, how, do, how do I decide what is really, truly valuable? And the third-born child, because the expectations are relaxed, after all, nobody thinks he's going to do anything. They think he's stupid. The third-born child has the freedom to do what all of us need to do, which is to say, what works for me? What is true for me? And he does this with complete patience and complete composure. And, of course, what we discover is that he's not stupid at all. He is just stupid in terms of how to get ahead in the world. His brothers know how to get ahead in the world. They cheat. Oh, (laughs) that doesn't really do it for very long. So this is a major theme. Birth order is there to reflect uh, um, certain things to us. And uh, they are always about whether we have the freedom to go inside ourselves. So in Hans the Hedgehog, very famous story, um, Hans is the second, well, he's the first uh, child, but he looks like a hedgehog, and he's rejected by his parents, and they call him stupid just because he doesn't look like everybody else. He's half hedgehog, as the story suggests. And father says, go away, you're not my child anymore. (laughs) total rejection. Now, Mm -hmm. that happens to firstborns and secondborns and thirdborns, but it can happen to firstborns who aren't very fortunate. And guess what? He goes into the dark forest, and he discovers what he's really, really good at. He's really good at raising animals. And so when he comes out of the forest, he is ready to claim his life as he sees fit, and that means that um, during the course of the story, he helps a king, and the king says, you know, when I get out of the forest, you can, you can of course, marry my daughter. And he, after may- various tribulations, he, um, he does do that. And this allows him, finally, to stop being Hunts the Hedgehog. He's able to remove his, his hedgehog skin because now he's with someone, the king's daughter, who is prepared to love him no matter what he looks like. And I have to say, it's a very moving tale. I've come across people who've been afraid that nobody will love them because they're not the same. They're, they don't, maybe, are not the most attractive people in the world. Uh, and then they've found someone who really loves them for who they are. And what emerges is, of course, the new person, the person who removes all the defenses, the hedgehog spikes of defense and becomes beautiful. Maybe not physically different, but beautiful in attitude. So we have not just uh, um, a whole series of, of stories that talk about birth order, but they are very flexible because they talk about the birth order and what happens if, what happens if an eldest child isn't the finest creature on the block because of course the eldest boy was was, uh, going to be the heir, uh, the son and heir. What happens if that child isn't, well that's Hans the Hedgehog In the boy who goes forward to learn about the shivers um, one of the very early tales in the sequence, he the boy um, is the second born son and the first born is you know, father's pet and does everything according to to convention but he the second born um, has a has a disability one might say that we don't he he doesn't realize as a disability and the disability in the boy who goes forward to hear about learn about the shivers is he's never scared he's never scared of anything He's just not scared. It doesn't doesn't happen to him. And the family, of course, says, well, this isn't natural. This isn't right. And they cast him off. And yet he learns during the course of the story uh, that courage is a wonderful thing. And he also learns when he finds the king's daughter, etc., that there is a time to be vulnerable. And the time to be vulnerable... Is when you love somebody, but he 's a second son, you know second sons certainly in the England I grew up in, uh, and before that, second sons were always thought of as being kind of superfluous. It was the first son who was going to get the money and the estate and the and the second son well mm, okay it 's right there in these stories frank soloway 's wonderful book, born to rebel. Um, outlines exactly uh-huh. these these uh, f- family dynamics but here were the Grimm Brothers before the phrase family dynamics it ever existed and they said look this is what happens in families and the listeners uh, sitting around the fire listening to the folk story reciter telling these stories would say "Hmm, yeah I know what it's like to be a second son who isn't who isn't regarded very well. Hmm, I know what it's like to be called dumb, and I know I'm not dumb. I know what... And they would identify with this, and they would see within the exaggerations of the tale their own psychological and spiritual situation, and they would learn and be healed by that. And I want to stress this idea of healing, because when we see our story or hear our story being told and we identify with it and we say, "Ah, I'm not alone. This is partly my story. When we see that, it gives us immense courage and a sense of liberation. We know if we're not alone, then, oh, other people have survived this too. Let's learn how they survived. Let's learn how it happened for them. So, you know, this is is absolutely vital um, in terms of family dynamics. The Grim Brothers tales, again and again, have to do with or illustrate situations, and you gave the situation of Cinderella, they illustrate situations which are um, family-centered and in which Mm -hmm. sometimes people need a little help to see Clearly, what's going on, so that they they don't feel ground down. I think these are terribly important things to to be to be told to children.
1: Oh, I, I do too. And I I just thought you know, I was sitting there, you know, reading your book, and I came across yeah you know, your reference to uh, Frank Sullivan's "Born to Rebel" book,
0: mm, yeah. and
1: he, uh, and he did uh, just a wonderful job of making that connection and how uh, all of Frank's uh, graphs and all all the charts in his book and all, all the research it, it really does. Emphasize the importance that the Grimm brothers put on uh, birth order, it, 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 mm. and you, you made that connection. I was like, "Oh, wow! That—that's a fascinating point you made."
2: <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah,
2: right. yeah it, it really is. I mean, families—we all come from families, and whether we like it or not, we have—we uh, we have a birth order which which changes roughly who we are likely to be. You know, I have, I have grandchildren and the eldest is seven and the the, the twins are two and the seven-year-old um, is perforce. You know, she, she, she loves her, her twin sisters and she looks after them. And so, suddenly she is in a position of firstborn authority (laughs) uh, Mm -hmm. and with authority, as it were, to care for and to some extent look after these two little tearaways. And that's going to shape her life experience forever. You know, if she'd been an only child, she wouldn't have that experience. She might be roughly the same, but she would perhaps... Um, have a different attitude towards the rest of the world, uh, her, you know, uh, and so on. And this is in, absolutely in tune with what Sullaway says and observes so so mm-hmm. carefully, and it's totally in tune with the Grim brothers. They, they they get it.
0: Yeah. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. And yeah. And, yeah and, you know, and and some of the other books on uh, birth order, and I talk about. Well, yeah, you can have two firstborn parents,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: yeah, that's kind of a mismatch. You know what? You know what's the effect going to be on, you know, the children? Uh, you know, w- w- would the children be completely different if, you know, dad was the firstborn and mom was a latterborn
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: child? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it, 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 it the, Whole family dynamic is, is you know uh, to just a really interesting study and there's mm-hmm. like uh, uh what's his name uh his last name's Lehman uh, he, he has mm-hmm. another interesting book on uh, birth order but you know yeah uh, you know, uh fr- fr- Frank's books really uh, it, 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 uh an excellent book and I, I enjoyed mm-hmm. having him on a mm-hmm. show I did you know. Pro- Five, four or five years ago, that mm-hmm. you know there, and you know, there's also, um, you know, well, so think of you know so some of these other archetypes that mm. uh, you know we see in literature and movies. you, you, know, you know, one example was, um, uh, like. Uh, John Fogarty's song Old Man Down the Road and mm-hmm. you know, his uh, you know, references to cross-tie walkers. Um, it, it, you, know, you get that creepy figure at the start of uh, the Pardner's Tale from the Canterbury Tales where mm-hmm. where, where he tells the, the rioters where they're going to find mm-hmm. uh, death um mm-hmm. um like the high plains drifter with you know, mm-hmm. Cl- Clint Eastwood yeah um you, you get some of these char- it, it, a, a lot of these characters seem like they're uh the these solitary people walking mm-hmm. through this barren landscape mhm yeah you really aren't sure if they're good or bad.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: Are they like Jesus in disguise or Satan in disguise? You know, like the hitchhiker episode of the twilight zone. Mm -hmm. You you know, they're very ambiguous, but Mm. you you, you get these uh, uh, characters where they're very wise. They, Mm-hmm. They know what's going on, but mm-hmm. can you really trust them? And mm-hmm. it, it, it's just really interesting to see how many uh, of these archetypes that y- you bring bring up. Uh, you know, just from the Grimm brothers, that also. You know, uh, yeah, you know, or in a Clint Eastwood movie, you know, he, he's uh with the High Plains Drifter, he, he's a mm-hmm. minister, but he you know, he's also uh doesn't have any problem uh punching you or uh <laughs> shoot, shooting you. Uh mm-hmm. yeah, you know all you know, uh Shirley MacLaine's character in the two mules for Sister Sarah. Yeah. Mhm. Uh, she's uh a, a prostitute dressed as a nun mhm yeah uh, you know that kind of goes back to the uh wife of bath
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh <laughs> you know, maybe like Nancy from uh you know please sir, i want some more uh with uh you know Oliver twist uh yeah. Yeah. You, you know so you, you get these like characters that it, 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 yeah, they are like the uh, magician archetype that you talk about, mm-hmm. but they're also seems like they're on their own pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, since they're by themselves, they're also an orphan. So it, it, it's yeah, it, uh, uh, you know these archetypes really aren't like a uh, like a reincarnation where you're kind of Working through the same one situation over and over until you get it right. It, it's you know these archetypes are kind of like get a whole bunch of different uh, strands all weaved together to create, um, I don't know, f- fuller characters. Mm, yeah, they aren't yeah. flat.
2: No, certainly not. No, uh, anything but flat. Yeah. Well, it's it's um, you know the, the 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 figures you describe here are, are wonderfully rich and varied, and um, uh, they are who they are, and they're all of them as it were on a journey. They're on a journey from the start of the story until the end of the story, and that usually means that they're on. They leave home, or they've already left home, and they're on a bit of a pilgrimage, even if it's a very short pilgrimage. And during that time, they are they are tested. So, um, you know, you brought up Nancy from Oliver Twist. You know, Nancy mm-hmm. is an orphan, and she um, she's she's the lover, I guess. She's a prostitute. but She's also the lover of um, of Bill Sykes. And uh, but she, instead of, instead of just being a baddie, she becomes you know the the prostitute with the heart of gold because she's the one who looks after and and, and takes care to a in the sense of, of young Oliver, and, and mm-hmm. gives her life as a result. So she goes. And she's on basically t- his mom. Yeah, she, basically she's a mom figure because he's lost his mom uh, at birth. Uh, but her journey is from being an orphan, doing, you know, uh, being a temporary wife to whichever man comes along, which is kind of uh, 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 being adopted, as it were. Um, she she becomes a pilgrim. She just dares to do what she sees is right. Uh, and in doing that, she becomes the next archetypal phase again, a warrior lover. Someone who is prepared to fight and die for what they believe in uh, and she does i mean she she believes uh, in, in in right and truth and all the rest of it to a certain extent she is killed by by Bill Sykes um, and that is part of what causes the plot to to turn and for Sykes himself to be to be cornered and uh, to die as a A proven Mm -hmm. murderer. So she breaks up the gang. Yeah, it breaks up the whole gang. It breaks up everything that Oliver has been stuck in. Um, So she's on her trajectory now. She she's a sort of she's almost a stereotype. The the prostitute with a heart of gold, as you say, Shirley MacLaine. um, She's a manipulative prostitute pretending to be the the nun uh and clint eastwood is trying terribly hard to to look after her to do the right thing and right at the end he discovers oh she's not a nun after all why did i go to all this trouble uh, which is is comic but between the two of them they've been on a journey as well they've been on a journey where uh he discovers he can protect people who seem to be vulnerable and she's discovered that there is a a man out there who who is perhaps a little more or a lot more honorable than all the men that she's uh, encountered so far so they learn something about about being human Rather than being shut down and saying all men are terrible and all women are, you know, terrible as well, so they, each of them has gone on, a, you might say, a journey of self-discovery. Um, and, and these figures appear again and again in in literature, in storytelling, actually because they're very they're very easy to identify. And so the reader goes, oh, okay, you know, I know who this is. They see a sort of stereotypical figure, and then they enjoy the variations on the theme. Uh, It makes it for a very good story. And the very best stories have stereotypical figures who grow and change and who realize something, or who allow us, the, the audience, to realize something about what's going on. So... Um, you know these we have these six archetypes, and i 'll just spell them out they're the 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 innocent where we all start, the orphan, the person who's looking for a place to uh, to be looked after, That's Cinderella, you know, and then everyone goes on a pilgrimage, and some people don 't make much of that pilgrimage, but some people change and they start to act on what they believe. And those are the that's that's Cinderella. She knows she needs to be at that ball. She knows that, that there is something important happening there, and so she she takes a risk and she goes there. And when she is there, she decides after three days, not nights. It's always in the daytime because people have to be able to see each other clearly. She decides after three days. Maybe this, this young king's son, maybe he's the one for me. And then she steps back and gives him three chances to come and find her. He's already chased after her and not captured her, as it were, and not apprehended her. But now he comes back to the house three times, looking, looking. He gets a chance not to do what his father wants, which is to choose a bride but to choose the bride he wants so by being a pilgrim she gives him the chance to be a pilgrim and then when he says this is the true bride he's making a declaration he's saying i don't care that she's covered in ashes she's dirty she's you know she's not dressed in finery this is the one i want that's a really brave Brave statement from a king's son. I mean, really, we've seen this quite recently, of course, where uh, where Harry, a king's son, decides to marry Meghan, who is the divorced mother, uh, American, oh, shock horror, American, being married into the English royal family. And you know, a few years ago, as we knew from uh, Edward VIII and Wallace Simpson. That would not have been allowed, as we saw from Princess Margaret, who wanted to marry the divorced um, Captain Townsend. That would not have been allowed, instead of which we've moved through the times. And to some extent, we've taken in the lessons, which is that here's a young man, Prince Harry, who says, I want this one. And I don't care what you say. And he not only has married her, but he's also gone on to leave the royal family to say, I want my life. Wow. So he's been a pilgrim, and then he's become a warrior lover, a fighter after what he believes in. With Megan, he will be able to affect more good in the world than he could have done on his own. And so he will be the fifth archetypal stage. He'll be the monarch pairing of king and queen, man and woman supporting each other, uh, or loving partners supporting each other in that regal sense of making executive decisions and also being compassionate. That's why I love the fact that they, uh, they're going off to do their thing and they're going, to, they're going to work for their own money. They're going to work for charities as well to make the world a better place. Wow! And when we're in that place, every so often, by our efforts, we can make magic happen. That is the magician phase. We won't be there all the time, but all of us have the capability to be there a few times in our lives. When operating from the highest version of who we are, we make things change. And that's right there in the Grimm Brothers as well, right there in the very first story, um, the Frog King. You know, when the Frog King. Um, takes away the, the young princess who has grown up enormously during the course of the story. He takes her away in the carriage. Uh, this is the part nobody ever talks about. And they're riding along the carriage, and the coachman has um, is up in front. There are eight white horses, beautiful white horses. And as they're going along, there's a bang. And the prince says, what's happening? Is the carriage falling to pieces? And Johannes, the carriage driver, who has been the king, the young king's young prince, the uh, young king's faithful servant, all these years while he's been imprisoned in his frog incarnation, the, the Johannes says, "No, that's okay. It's not the carriage that's falling to piece, pieces. That was the iron band that I had put around my heart to stop it from breaking when you were turned into a frog." He said, now my heart is swelling with with joy, and that's the iron band breaking. And you think, whoa, there, there's a huge symbolic uh, scenario right there. And it happens three times, three iron bands, bang, break. And you say, that's what happens when you see two people, a, a, a loving couple uh, loving partners when you see two people who are really in tune with each other who are going forward into the world bravely when you see that your heart swells anybody's heart swells and when we see that we are inspired we're inspired by their example and when we're inspired we're, we become the best versions of ourselves Now, when Mm -hmm. Prince Harry married Meghan Markle, um, I'm sure there were lots of people around England and around the world who looked at it and said, this isn't just a royal spectacle, this isn't just Disney, this is inspiring. These are two people who are going to do something. And you know what? I wouldn't mind betting that not just me, (laughs) but other people, many other people looked up and said, I admire that. I can be a braver person than I have been too. I can, I can support others to be brave. And that's magic, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not waving a wand. It's the effect of an example on everybody else. So that's the sixth stage of the archetypes, when we can inspire others. And we can. You do it all the time with your with this radio program. You inspire people to think beyond what is obvious and and you know the coloured brochure of what to buy next. You inspire people, and so when they are inspired, you whether you know it or not at that moment are working the magic. But you couldn't do that unless you were doing something that you do exceptionally well. And prepared to take it out into the world. If you'd stayed at home and never ventured out, none of this could this conversation couldn't be happening now.
1: And, uh that's. Yeah, you know, I hope Barbara heard that, and she,
0: yeah, <laughs> I she, hope so too. <laughs> yeah,
1: she, and she, yeah, she, she was talking about tripling my uh, salary. So, you know, well, <laughs> oh,
0: good. Yeah, you know, she
1: she she, she hasn't chimed thanks. in yet. So thanks. I uh, will speak for myself on that one. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I don't recall saying tripling your salary, Mark.
1: <laughs> oh, we oh, we still know what it's the uh, uh, n- net gain is, but uh, uh, that's all right. The the I. Uh, you know, you were just talking about the uh, uh, uh frog king and you know, one of the interesting things about the uh, Grimm grim brothers uh fairy tales is the the use of uh animals to mm. uh for, for the the, the story and mm. it, it, you, know, we, you know we get um uh, probably some of the a- aesop fable uh mm, yeah. tales have lasted for what uh, about 2000 years in print mm. uh b- because it is an effective teaching tool uh mm. you you get a couple of uh, the canterbury tales that uh deal with uh uh was uh uh, uh, d- uh none the nuns priests tale yeah, or something priest, with, with uh, animal, chan- you know. yeah, uh, Chanticleer. chant Yeah, yeah yeah that, that, that uh, okay that yeah. I, I i'm not surprised i remember that one from 30 years ago but uh <laughs> you, and you get like a- animal farm and it mm. it, it, yeah. it it really does you know pull in uh, you know different ages of reader you, know, you can relate oh, yeah. okay what does that horse uh, symbolize in
0: mm-hmm. A- mm-hmm. animal yeah.
1: farm and you know more mature yeah. readers are uh, digging a little deeper into the pigs and th- mm-hmm. okay i see what you know what orwell's meaning by that but it, you know how are the uh, uh, grim brothers uh using animals in their tales
2: well, yeah, um, roughly the same way that you're describing, and uh, uh, the first thing we, we have to realize is that when you bring in things like talking animals, you're immediately signaling to anybody who's listening to the tale, you're signaling, this isn't real, but it might just be about something that is real. Um, so it's a, it's a wonderful way of opening things up, just as Aesop did with all his fables. I mean, he, he anthropomorphizes the animals a little bit, but he uses them to show that people are like that as well. So if we go to the Frog King, the very first tale in the in the collection of the Grim Brothers, so therefore the one that everybody's uh, going to come across first, um, we have another aspect because... If you if you were around, well, if you were around farm life, um, at any point, but certainly in the year 1800 in Germany, everybody knew what frogs were symbols of. This was because there was still a cult of uh, Mother Holler, who was uh, um, a figure who was supposed to preside over wells and fountains and uh, right. she was uh, her sacred animal was actually the frog um, but more important than, than 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 that dim reference because most people were professed as catholics uh, was the fact that everybody in the countryside knew that frogs started off as, as frog spawn that sort of jelly like white stuff with a little dot in the center and that these would hatch into into little tadpoles who swam in the water and under the water and gradually they would grow legs and gradually they would crawl above the water and start to breathe air and everybody would see this every spring when the frogs um, laid their spawn and they would say oh this is a story about frogs we know about frogs frogs change they change visibly more perhaps than any other animal that we know about. I mean, butterflies change, but that happens over an entire season. So looking at a frog, people would go, oh, yeah, symbol of change. Of course, frogs change. And they would also say to themselves, frogs live in clean water. And if you were around in 1800 Mm. in Germany, you cared whether your water was clean or not. If you Mm -hmm. had a frog in the in the water you could be pretty sure as long as you didn't drink with f- the bit of water with the frog in it that this was pretty good water this was okay in fount- when i grew up uh, my mother was swiss i grew up in switzerland and the fountains um around several of the main squares cuz they were very this is the way people got their fresh water until comparatively recently the top of the fountain was for drinking the bottom was for uh, laundry and in the middle you could uh, you could give the animals something to drink but many of these fountains had little little spouting uh, figures of stone or bronze and quite often they'd be frogs because this old old connection was oh frogs fountains sacredness of flowing, clean water, change and growth. So the frog king, you know, as soon as people would have heard the idea of the frog, oh, frogs, oh, this is a story about change. And sure enough, he does change. He stops being a frog and he changes into a young king. Uh, He stops being this rather pesky animal and uh, amphibian and starts to become a person. Um, similarly with the princess herself, she stops being a spoiled brat telling the frog, yeah, I'll promise you anything if you get my little golden ball back, and then as soon as she's got the ball back, she, change, she changes her mind and runs off, she changes from being a brat to someone who actually has real courage, I mean she says she's she knows she's got to have someone in her bed, but if it's not going to be some amphibian, and she's outraged by this you know she's outraged as she should be you know you could see, say he's a frog but you could also say he's a creep <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, and she doesn't deserve to be in bed with a creep so she throws him at the wall to kill him wow that's not the action of a weak kid it's the action of someone who's coming into their own power and that, right. of course, because she's in her own power and says, no, I don't want that. I need a man in my life, a significant other who is a person that allows him to become the person he really is, not to be an amphibian. So the, 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 the complex role of animals here is that often animals know things that we, as humans, may forget, so occasionally you 'll have a faithful horse, or actually several times you 'll have a faithful horse um, several times you 'll have princes or princesses who meet uh, creatures that are very helpful to them, and what characterizes those those young heroes of the stories and heroines of the stories is that they are kind to animals they do not um, uh, um, mistreat them in any way so there's one particular story where a young uh, young man is very hungry and he's walking out on the street and he, he sees um, he sees a duck and he grabs the duck and says okay you' You're going to be my food, and the duck says, "No, no no, no, no i've got I've got my little ones here. Spare me, and I'll help you later And he sees another series of animals in the story, and of course, later in the story, they come back to help him. So the sense is there that nature is not just something to be grabbed and consumed, but there is somehow um, a give and take here between ourselves and nature and that we must respect that. Now, Mm -hmm. obviously, that means if you're hungry, you are probably going to trap and kill a duck at some point. But you're not going to just regard it as food. The idea is to regard it as a fellow creature within nature that sometimes has to be eaten and sometimes can be very useful. So this this echoes through the stories. Animals aren't just mobile food. They are are creatures who have something to contribute, and often that contribution is far beyond what the individual expected. So the animals teach kindness, teach reciprocity, and teach, in some ways, teach us what what we're feeling in the case of frog king. It's really
1: a big okay. question uh, <laughs> yeah uh, uh, Alan we're down to about two minutes uh yeah. left I, I just want to thank you for uh being such a wonderful guest i want to recommend oh, yeah. to the highly recommend to the listeners uh pick up uh a copy of prince's frogs and uh, Ugly Sisters, The Healing Power of the Grim Brothers Tales by Dr. Alan G. Hunter. And do you, know, do you have any uh, public appearances, any other, uh, you know, it's kind of hard at this,
0: uh, you know, period. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. is there, but is there, you know, do you
1: have anything coming up where, uh, you, you know, you could plug it, you know, Net, yeah, um, time or website, yes. Uh, well, there's,
2: there's my website, uh, alanhunter.net, a double l a n, alanhunter.net. Uh, I've been doing a, a COVID diary every day, um, uh, there. Uh, not many public appearances because there's not much happening in the public appearances domain, but I will be teaching a class, uh, with Carla Sondheim's um, uh, online group, that's S-O-N-H-E-I-M Carla Sommheim she teaches art classes uh, particularly, but this class has to do with word and picture, and I'm looking at narrative um, and how you can use narrative uh, and oh, okay. art together yeah, um, it's just fascinating stuff uh, in the okay. in next spring if all goes well, I'll be teaching um, with Baypath University, and again, an online class. Uh, this is the Narrative Therapies fl- uh, class, and I'm one segment of that. It's a wonderful program where they look, well, they have a wonderful creative program as well, but this is a graduate class looking at the way narrative and healing are interlinked and ways that this can be used by practitioners, social workers, uh, therapists, um, anyone who has an interest in this particular healing modality. It's um, it's fascinating stuff.
1: Okay, so uh, we're down to the last couple seconds. Thank you again, and uh, we will see, see everyone Tuesday.